Hi, this is Mrs. Corrin recording chapter 19 from the conceptual physics book. This is on liquids. We live on the only planet in the solar system covered mostly by a liquid. The Earth's oceans are made of H2O in the liquid phase. If the Earth were a little closer to the sun, the oceans would turn to vapor. If the Earth were a little farther away, most of its surface, not just its polar regions, would be solid ice. It's nice that the Earth is where it is. In the liquid phase, molecules can flow freely from position to position by sliding over one another. The shape of a liquid takes the shape of its container. 19.1 Liquid Pressure a liquid in a container exerts forces on the walls and bottom of the container. To investigate the interaction between the liquid and a surface, it's useful to discuss the concept of pressure. Recall from chapter five that pressure is defined as the force per area on which the force acts. Pressure is equal to force divided by area. The pressure that a block exerts on a table is simply the weight of the block divided by its area of contact. Similarly, for a liquid in a cylindrical container like the one shown on figure 19.1, the pressure the liquid exerts against the bottom of the container is the weight of the liquid divided by the area of the container bottom. We'll ignore for now the additional atmospheric pressure. How much a liquid weighs, and thus how much pressure it exerts, depends on its density. Consider two identical containers, one filled with mercury and the other filled to the same depth with water. For the same depth, the denser liquid exerts more pressure. Mercury is 13.6 times as dense as water. So for the same volume of, of liquid, the weight of mercury is 13.6 times the weight of water. Thus, the pressure of mercury on the bottom is 13.6 times the pressure of water. For liquids of the same density, the pressure will be greater at the bottom of the deeper liquid. Consider, consider, the, two sorry, consider the two containers in figure 19.2. If the liquid in the first container is twice as deep as the liquid in the second container, then as with the two blocks, one atop the other, liquid pressure at the bottom of the first container will be twice that of the second container. So this is really worth opening up that PDF and taking a look at the picture. So the picture we're looking at is figure 19.2. So it says underneath it, the two blocks exert twice as much pressure on the table as one block. Okay, so there's two blocks on top of each other. And obviously the two blocks are pushing down on the table with twice as much pressure as one block would be pushing down on the table. Similarly, the liquid in the first container, which is filled all the way to the top, is twice as deep. So the pressure, is, the pressure on the bottom is twice that exerted by the liquid in the second container, which is only halfway filled. It turns out that the pressure of a liquid at rest depends only on the density and the depth of the liquid. That's it, that's all it depends on. Not on the shape of the container or the size of its bottom surface. 
Liquids are practically incompressible. So except for changes in temperature, the density of a liquid is normally the same at all depths. The pressure created by a liquid is, there's like a formula, pressure due to liquid is equal to weight density times depth. At a given depth, a given liquid exerts the same pressure against any surface, the bottom or sides of its container, or even the surface of an object submerged in the liquid to that depth. The pressure a liquid exerts depends on its density and depth. If you press your hand against a surface, somebody else... <laughs> If you press your hand against a surface and somebody else presses against your hand in the same direction, then the pressure against the surface is greater than if you pressed alone. Likewise with the atmospheric pressure that presses on the surface of a liquid. The total pressure of a liquid then is weight density times depth plus the pressure of the atmosphere. When this distinction is important, we will use the term total pressure. Otherwise, our discussions of liquid pressure often refer to pressure in addition to the normally ever-present atmospheric pressure. More about atmospheric pressure in the next chapter. So um, just in general, remember how we kind of, unless you, we specifically say it, we're going to do things like, discount air drag when we are doing an equation. In this case, unless we specifically say it, we are going to discount atmospheric pressure. It may surprise you that the pressure of a liquid does not depend on the amount of liquid. Neither the volume nor even the total weight of liquid matters. For example, if you sampled water pressure at one meter beneath the surface of a large lake, and one meter beneath the surface of a small pound, a pool, the pressures would be the same. There's a great picture on uh, 19.3 on your PDF. The dam that must withstand the greater pressure is the dam with the deepest water behind it, not the most water. The fact that water pressure depends on depth and not on volume is nicely illustrated with Pascal's vases, figure 19.4. Note that the water surface in each of the connected vases is at the same level. This occurs because the pressures at equal, vase, equal depths beneath the surfaces are the same. At the bottom of each vase, for example, the pressures are equal. If they were not, liquid would flow until the pressures were equalized. That is why we say water seeks its own level. So there is an interesting picture on 19.4. So a good way to use this recording, if you are, is to have the PDF open so that you can see these pictures as I'm reading about them. At any point within a liquid, the forces that produce pressure are exerted equally in all directions. For example, when you are swimming underwater, 
no matter which way you tilt your head, you feel the same amount of water pressure on your ears. So there's some questions to think about. Is there more pressure at the bottom of a bathtub of water 30 centimeters deep or at the bottom of a pitcher of water 35 centimeters deep? Where would there be more pressure? Well, there's a lot more water in a bathtub, but the pitcher of water is a little bit deeper. So which one? And the answer is there's more pressure at the bottom of the pitcher because the water in it is deeper. The fact that there is more water in the bathtub, it doesn't even matter. It's kind of surprising, but stuff in physics is often surprising. Here's another question. A brick mason wishes to mark the back of a building at the exact height of bricks already laid in the front of the building. How can he measure the same height using only a garden hose and water? Okay, this is interesting. I'm going to read the answer. To measure the same height, the brick mason can extend a garden hose that is open at both ends from the front to the back of the house. Okay, that's it. So a big tube and fill it with water until the water level reaches the height of the bricks in the front. Since water seeks its own level, the level of the water and the other end of the hose will be the same. All right. That's interesting. But I think a picture would have maybe been better with that. Okay, let's move on. When the liquid is pressing against a surface, there is a net force directed perpendicular to the surface. Figure 19.5 at the top. If there is a hole in the surface, the liquid initially will move perpendicular to the surface, figure 19.5, in the bottom. Gravity, of course, causes the path of the liquid to curve downward. At greater depths, the net force is greater and the horizontal velocity of the escaping liquid is greater. So this picture is if you have a bucket and you have a bunch of holes in the bucket, some of the holes are at the top and some of the holes are at the bottom, how is the water gonna look as it's escaping from that bucket full of water? So think about that in terms of what we have just learned in 19.1 regarding liquid pressure. We are actually gonna talk about that in class. So that's the end of 19.1. 19.2, buoyancy. If you, ever, if you have ever lifted up a submerged object out of the water, you are familiar with buoyancy, the apparent loss of weight of objects when submerged in a liquid. It is a lot easier to lift a boulder submerged on the bottom of a riverbed than to lift it above the water surface. The reason is that when the boulder is submerged, the water exerts an upward force that is opposite in direction to gravity. This upward force is called the buoyant force. To understand where the buoyant force comes from, look at figure 19.6. The arrows represent the force by the liquid that produce pressure against the submerged boulder. The forces are greater at greater depth. The forces act horizontally against the sides and they cancel each other out so the boulder is not pushed sideways. The force, but the forces acting upward against the bottom are greater than those acting downward against the top because the bottom of the boulder is deeper 
The difference in upward and downward forces is the buoyant force. When the weight of a submerged object is greater than the buoyant force, the object will sink. When the weight is equal to the buoyant force, the submerged object will remain at any level like a fish. When the weight is less than the buoyant force, the object will rise to the surface and float. Do you want to further understand buoyancy, it helps to think more about what happens when an object is placed in the water. If a stone is placed in a container of water, the water level will rise, figure 19.7. Water is said to be displaced or pushed aside by the stone. A little thought will tell us that the volume, that is the amount of space taken up or the number of cubic centimeters of water displaced is equal to the volume of the stone. A completely submerged object always displaces a volume of liquid equal to its own volume. I'm just going to say it again. A completely submerged object always displaces a volume of liquid equal to its own volume. This gives us a good way to determine the volume of an irregularly shaped object. Simply submerge it in water in a measuring cup and note the increase in volume of water. That increase in volume is equal to the volume of the submerged object. You'll find this is, technique is handy when you want to determine the density of things like rocks that have an irregular shape. 19.3, Archimedes' Principle. The relationship between buoyancy and displaced liquid was discovered in ancient times by the Greek philosopher Archimedes, 3rd century BC. It is stated as follows, an immersed object is buoyed up by a force equal to the weight of the fluid it displaces. This relationship is called Archimedes' Principle. It is true for liquids and gases, which are both fluids. Immersed means either completely or partially submerged. For example, if we Im immerse a sealed one liter container halfway into water, it will displace half a liter of, of water and be buoyed up by the weight of half a liter of water. If we immerse it all the way, submerge it, it will be buoyed up by the weight of a full liter of water, 9.8 newtons. Unless the completely submerged container becomes compressed, the buoyant force will be equal, the buoyant force will equal the weight of one liter of water at any depth. Why? Because the container will displace the same volume of water and hence the same weight of water at any depth. The weight of this displaced water, not the weight of the submerged object, is the buoyant force. A 300-gram brick weighs about 3 newtons in the air. Suppose the brick displaces 2 newtons of water when it is submerged. The buoyant forces on the submerged brick will also equal 2 newtons. The brick will seem to weigh less underwater than above water. In the water, its apparent weight will be 3 newtons minus the 2-newton buoyant force, or 1 newton. The apparent weight of the submerged object is the weight in air minus the buoyant force. Perhaps your teacher will summarize Archimedes' principle by way of a numerical example to show that the upward force due to the water pressure on the bottom of the submerged block 
minus the downward force due to the water pressure on the top equals the weight of the liquid displaced. As long as the block is submerged, depth makes no difference. Why? Because there is more pressure at greater depths, the difference in pressure on the top and bottom of the block is the same at any depth. Whatever the shape of the submerged object, the buoyant force equals the weight of the liquid displaced. Okay, I'm going to say that again because it's so important. Whatever the shape of the submerged object, the buoyant force equals the weight of the liquid displaced. All right, there are some questions that are answered here. And I am going to just encourage you to look at them and answer them yourself. They're on page 279. We're going to move on. 19.4, does it sink or does it float? We have learned that the buoyant force on a submerged object depends on the object's volume. A smaller object displaces less water, so a smaller buoyant force acts on it. A larger object displaces more water, so a larger buoyant force acts on it. The submerged object's volume, not its weight, determines buoyant force. A misunderstanding of this idea is the root of a lot of confusion that you or your friends may have about buoyancy. So far, we focused on the weight of displaced fluid, not on the weight of the submerged object. Now we're going to consider its role. Whether an object sinks or floats, or does neither, depends on both its buoyant force up and its weight down. How great the buoyant force is compared with the object's weight. Careful thought will show that when the buoyant force exactly equals the weight of the completely submerged object, then the object's weight must equal the weight of the displaced water. Since the volumes of the object of the displaced water are the same, the density of the object must equal the density of water. This is true for a fish whose density equals the density of water. The fish is at one with the water. It doesn't sink or float. If the fish were somehow bloated up, it would be less dense than the water and it would float to the top. If the fish swallowed a stone, it would become more dense th than the water and it would sink to the bottom. This can be summed up in three simple rules. Number one, an object more dense than the fluid in which it is immersed sinks. Number two, an object less dense than the fluid in which it, it is immersed floats. Number three, <clears throat> I'm sorry, an object with density equal to the density of the fluid in which it is immersed neither sinks nor floats. From these rules, what do we say about people who, try as they may, cannot float? They're simply too dense. To float more easily, you must reduce your density. Since weight density is weight divided by volume, you must either reduce your weight or increase your volume. Taking in a lung full of air can increase your volume temporarily. A life jacket does a better job. It increases your volume while adding a little to your weight. The density of a submarine is controlled by the flow of water into and out of its ballast tanks. 
In this way, the weight of the submarine can be varied to achieve the desired average density. A fish regulates its density by expanding or contracting an air sac that changes its volume. A fish can move upward by increasing its volume, which increases density, and downward by contracting its volume, which increases density. A crocodile increases its density when it swallows stones. From four to five kilograms of stones have been found lodged in the front parts of uh, the stomach in large crocodiles. With its increased density, the crocodile swims lower in the water and exposes less, less of itself to its prey. That's interesting. All right. Flotation. 19.5. Primitive peoples. How about ancient peoples? Ancient people made their boats of wood. Could they have conceived of an iron ship? We don't know. The idea of floating iron might have seemed strange. Today, it is easy for us to understand how a ship made of iron can float. Consider a solid one-ton solid block. Consider a solid one-ton block of iron. Iron is nearly eight times as dense as water. So when it is submerged, it will displace only one-eighth ton of water. The buoyant force will be far from enough to keep it from sinking. Suppose we reshape the same iron block into a bull shape as shown in 19.14. The iron bull still weighs one ton. If you lower the bull into a body of water, it displaces a greater volume of water than before. The deeper the bull is immersed, the more water is displaced, and the greater is the buoyant force exerted on the bull. When the weight of the displaced water equals the weight of the bull, it will sink no further. It will float because the buoyant force now equals the weight of the bull. This is an example of the principle of flotation, which states a floating object displaces a weight of fluid equal to its own weight. Every ship must be, must be designed to displace a weight of water equal to its own weight. Thus, a 10,000 ton ship must be built wide enough to displace 10,000 tons of water before it sinks too deep below the surface. Think about a submarine below the surface. If it displaces a weight of water greater than its own weight, it will rise. If it displaces less, it will go down. If it displaces exactly its weight, it will remain at constant depth. Water has slightly different densities at different temperatures, so a submarine must make periodic adjustments as it moves through the ocean. As the next chapter shows, a hot air balloon obeys the same rules. Again, there are some questions you might want to look at on page 283. Wow, we're already to the last part of this. 19.6, Pascal's Principle. Push a stick against a wall and we can exert a pressure at a distance. Interestingly enough, we can do the same with a fluid. Whenever we change the pressure in one part of a fluid, this change is transmitted to other parts. 
For example, if the pressure of city water is increased at a pumping station by 10 units of pressure, the pressure everywhere in the pipes of the connected system will be increased by 10 units of pressure when water is not moving. This rule is called Pascal's principle. Here it is. Changes in pressure at any point in an enclosed fluid at rest are transmitted undiminished at all points in the fluid and act in all dimensions. Directions. I'm going to read it again. Changes in pressure at any point in an enclosed fluid at rest are transmitted undiminished at all points in the fluid and act in all directions. Pascal's principle was discovered in the 17th century by, oh, I didn't know this was his name, his first name, Blaise Pascal. That's great. For whom the SI unit of pressure was named. Pascal's principle is employed in an hydraulic press. Okay, that's the kind of thing that pushes your car up if you have to get your car worked on so they can work underneath your car. If you fill a U-shaped tube with water and place pistons at each end, as shown in figure 19.18, the pressure exerted against the left piston will be transmitted throughout the liquid and against the bottom of the right piston. The pistons are simply plugs that can slide freely snugly inside the tube. The pressure the left piston exerts against the water will be exactly equal to the pressure the water exerts against the right piston if the levels are the same. This is nothing to get excited about. But suppose you make the tube on the right side wider and use a piston of larger area, then the result is impressive. In figure 19.19, the piston on the left has an area of one square centimeter and the piston on the right has an area of 50 times as great, 50 square centimeters. Suppose there is a one Newton load on the left piston, then an additional pressure of one Newton per square centimeter, one Newton per centimeter squared, is transmitted throughout the liquid and up against the larger piston. Here is where the difference between force, force and pressure comes in. The additional pressure of one Newton per centimeter squared is exerted against every square centimeter of the larger piston. Since there are 50 square centimeters, the total extra force exerted on the larger piston is 50 Newtons. Thus, the larger piston will support a 50 Newton load. This is 50 times the load on the smaller piston. This is quite remarkable, for we can multiply forces with such a device, a one Newton input, 50 Newton output. By further increasing the area of the larger piston or reducing the area of the smaller piston, we can multiply forces to any amount. Pascal's principle underlies the operation of the hydraulic press. The hydraulic press does not violate energy conservation, for the increase in force is compensated for by a decrease in distance moved. When the small piston in the last example is moved downward 10 centimeters, the large piston will be raised only 1 50th of this, or 0.2 centimeters. Very much like a mechanical lever, lever, I'm sorry, very much like a mechanical lever, 
the input force multiplied by the distance it moves is equal to the output force multiplied by the distance it moves. The hydraulic press is a machine, much like those discussed in section 8.7, which we actually haven't gone over yet. Pascal's principle applies to all fluids, and that includes gases and liquids. A typical application of Pascal's principle for liquids and gases is the automo automobile lift seen at many service stations, figure 19.2. Compressed air exerts pressure on the oil in an underground reservoir. The oil in turn transmits the pressure to a cylinder which lifts the automobile. The relatively low pressure that exerts the lifting force against the piston is about the same as the air pressure in the tires of an automobile because the low pressure is exerted over a relatively large area, it produces a considerable force. Okay, that's it. That's all of chapter 19. There's a nice chapter review, but we will be talking about it in class. Thank you.